Welcome to the American Shoulder and Elbow Surgeons Podcast. I'm your host, Peter Chalmers, a shoulder and elbow surgeon at the University of Utah in Salt Lake City. And I'm joined today by my co-host, Rachel Frank, a sports and shoulder surgeon at the University of Colorado in Denver. Rachel, how are you? Doing well. Thanks, Pete. How are you? Oh, I'm doing great. Before we get started, I should mention the views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of the American Shoulder and Elbow Surgeon Society, the University of Utah, the University of Colorado, or the institutions of any of our guests. Today, we have a real treat for you. We're talking about clinical research. And we invite an individual who has an absolute wealth of experience, who has completed some truly groundbreaking work. So we have Dr. Jed Kuhn, who's currently the Chief of Shoulder at Vanderbilt. Dr. Kuhn, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Pete. Thanks, Rachel. We're so glad to have you here. I wanted to start by asking you how you first became interested in clinical research. Well, you know, that's a good question. Um, uh, when I was a fellow, uh, I was at the Stebbin Hawkins Clinic, and they wanted to develop a system for collecting data on their patients, and this is 1993. And uh, they really had no system in place. And so I was actually really helpful, I think, to them in starting to set that up. And we set up a system that collected uh, data on shoulder patients uh, and collected all the different outcome scores that were used back then, none of which were validated and very good, but nevertheless, we were able to collect that data. Uh, and, and, you know, the important, the clinical research is, is critically important. Uh, I, I did some bio, uh, biomechanics research at Michigan for a long time, and that, that's important as well. But I think, in my opinion, if you want to make a difference that's very impactful in the lives of people, uh, the clinical research tends to do that a little bit more effectively. You've made some incredible contributions to the field over the last several decades. This is, I think, a question that um, that is always interesting for myself when talking to high-level researchers, and I think our audience will be really interested. What clinical study are you most proud of? That's a good question. Uh, you know, it's it, it's really funny how these things work. So, uh, we we when we set up the Moon Group, we we wanted to study why rotator cuff tears failed. When we repaired them, the failure rate was very high, and we didn't really understand why some people failed and why some people didn't. And so we decided to uh, get together and we spent a lot of time in the in the beginning stages, kind of figuring out exactly what we wanted to do and and pr- trying to s- streamline our practices and get rid of as many variables as we could. And one of the variables that we had was our indications for surgery. Uh, people had different indications. You know, people in Colorado were, uh, were very interested in like operating on patients because their patients are all fit and active and they all want it fixed. And our, and our researchers in Iowa uh, were telling us that their patients who were farmers couldn't take four months off or they just lose their, their revenue, their, their income. So, we sat around the table and we tried to figure out who needs surgery and who doesn't. We tried to come up with an agreement. We looked at the literature and there really wasn't much there. So we said, well, let's, let's just do a pilot study and let's send everybody we see with rotator cuff tears through physical therapy. And we knew some would get better. We knew some wouldn't. And if we could compare those two, then we would know who needs surgery and who doesn't. Uh, and that really led to our first major moon study. Uh, and I think that's been a pretty important thing in my practice because now I operate on far fewer rotator cuffs than I used to before I had that data. Uh, one of the interesting things, though, is that, you know, I, as part of this, we had to come up with a therapy protocol. So I did a systematic review and, and came up with a therapy protocol based on level one evidence in the literature and, and published it. And the only reason I published it was because I wanted to have something I could refer to when I wrote 
grants. You know, we're going to use this protocol. Here's the reference. And, and apparently that publication has been downloaded from the Journal of Shoulder and Elbow Surgery more than any other publication they've ever published. So you never know how these things work out. I mean, the whole concept of that research project was a pilot study just to help us get our, our grounds to decide who needs surgery for a, a much bigger study. And it got, just kind of took off from there. I think it's so interesting that you, it was, that was the beginning and the beginning turned into the entire project. I think it's so telling about, so I think that's such a lesson about clinical research that you never know where, where you're going to go until you start. And then all of a sudden it will take you someplace that might be unexpected. That's absolutely true. Every time you do a project or, or do something, it tends to raise more questions. And those questions are worth exploring as well. So we've had Dr. Peter McDonald join. Um, Dr. Peter McDonald is the chair of orthopedic surgery at the University of Manitoba in Winnipeg. Dr. McDonald, welcome to the podcast. I wanted to ask you the same question I asked Dr. Kuhn, which is how you first became involved in clinical research. Well, I guess throughout my fellowship, uh, I was, and even through my residency, I was pretty interested in research. Um, but once I got into uh, practice, there was two big influencers who kind of showed me the way in terms of randomized clinical trials. And one was Sandy Kirkley, uh, the late Sandy Kirkley at Western, who uh, most people know who she was. Um, she was a real go-getter, dynamo, um, very enthusiastic uh, and very strong believer. Uh, she had her master's in clinical epidemiology, very strong believer in randomized clinical trials. And she was um, um, very instrumental in kind of teaching me how to do a proper uh, multi-center trial. Along with the other individu individual who influenced me was uh, Nick Motadi in Calgary, who also um, had his master's in uh, clinical epidemiology. Mick, Nick was, uh, or still is, a, a very uh, highly influential researcher. Who, he has very high standards uh, in terms of the research that he puts out. It's gotta be flawless. It's gotta be study that's beyond reproach. Um, he really is rigid in terms of protocols and, and eliminating all biases. And, but he's, he's also a driving force. He, he kind of overcomes obstacles and gets things done. So the first study I was involved with was uh, uh, some of the people who are a little bit older would remember, remember the uh, radio frequency heat probe, uh, which came in with a lot of uh, enthusiasm and was going to solve all our instability problems. And, and of course, now it's kind of extinct. Um, but they wanted to do a study, and we, we actually completed a study on um, on multidirectional instability, uh, the treatment of it with the radio frequency heat probe. But interesting enough, interestingly enough, by the time the study was out, the heat probe had been abandoned, but it the results of the study showed that it actually didn't do too bad in terms of being an alternative for some patients with multidirectional instability. But it was kind of too late because everybody had stopped using it due to fear for complications like adhesive uh, capsulitis and chondrolysis and stuff like that. So uh, so th those are the two people who really influenced me. And, and in, within Canada, we're kind of a close-knit group, and it's easy to kind of phone up people like Peter Lapner in Ottawa and say, let's do a study together. And um, it's easier to convince Canadians to go into a study, I think, than some places in the U.S., so uh, we have a captive audience and um, we've 
oh, like our different centers, we've hired uh, research staff that help us out quite a bit. So we're able to produce these types of studies and we've been uh, very thankful that we could put out studies like the acromioplasty study, the single double, double row cuff repair study, remplissage study and things like that lately that uh, have been uh, well-cited studies. Dr. McDonald, you've made some incredible contributions to the field. You just mentioned a few of the studies, I think, that all of us reference and enjoyed reading, and it's nice to be able to use those papers to talk to our patients. What is your favorite clinical study, the one that you're most proud of, if you can think of all the work that you've contributed? What's the one, if you could say, yeah, that that was it for me, what would you pick? Uh, interesting. Like They have all been kind of fun to be involved with and fun to Watch the, the biggest problem with randomized clinical studies is, as I alluded to, they take so long to come out. It's about average seven years, six, seven years. So you want to do a study that's not going to be obsolete by the time the, the study is finished and written up. So that's always the skill to pick a, pick a topic that's not going to be obsolete at the end. But I think the Rapplesage one was my favorite. It's the more recent one and um, showing a difference between the two groups that uh, was significant. And after all that work, it's kind of, it's uh, rewarding to see that, in fact, it's not a no difference study, which is kind of frustrating when you do a huge study and put all that work in and there's no difference between the groups, which in terms of quality of life measurements, usually that's the outcome, but there was a di significant difference in the Rompsage study in terms of frequency of recurrent instability. So it's rewarding to actually get some results out of it. I wanted to follow up on something you just said, Dr. McDonald, about how you as Canadians have really worked together well. I mean, I think that's something everyone's probably noticed reading the literature and how successful you guys have been in these multi-center studies. What, what lessons have you learned in building a study group that involves people from disparate backgrounds or disparate institutions? How have you successfully managed that? And what can we learn about that, you know, here in the U.S. and elsewhere about how to be successful in the future? Yeah, it's a great question. You have to have a group that, first of all, they throw their ego out the door. Um, you don't want to be fighting over who's the first author and so on and so forth. You kind of have to, have to spell those things out in the beginning or or kind of take turns being first author or actually have the group, research group, the multi-center group being the authorship. Like um, we had a group called Joints Canada, which was the we agreed that all the publications would be authored by Joints Canada, which is Joint Orthopedic Initiatives for National Trials of the Shoulder. So that's what we published under for a while. <clears throat> but uh, with you know, we've done a lot of studies with Peter Lapner, and he's in Ottawa. He's great in terms of you know, I'll be first author in one study, he'll be first author in the next sort of thing, even though we contribute kind of equally. So you have to have that uh, level of uh, collegiality and cooperation that there's not going to be infighting and ego stuff you have to have a good good backup staff like uh our director of research uh, sheila mccray who's a phd is she's an excellent uh, asset for us she does all the grunt work and ends up writing up most of the papers herself and so having somebody on staff like that uh, works. And then we have to have a patient population that is willing to go in studies and not get too fussed about whether they're in one group or another. Um, I remember we discussed with uh, with some centers in the U.S. whether they want to do a biceps tenotomy versus tenodesis study or be involved in ours. 
and they said, forget it, we'd get sued for doing tenotomies in some people. So you have to have a patient population that's willing to to go into the two different arms of the study. So those are the ingredients. Um, it uh, It's not easy sometimes to get these studies done, but uh, they're rewarding in the end. Dr. Kuhn, let's throw this to you and ask specifically about your experience with Moon. Um, you alluded to this a little bit earlier. What have you learned from doing Moon studies, setting up the database? You know, as as at the University of Colorado, we're, we're part of Moon, and in my um, career here so far, I've learned that it can be very difficult um, from a variety of different perspectives that I hadn't even thought of back when I was in residency and fellowship. I just enjoyed reading the papers, but there's so much challenge that goes into creating the research to create those papers. Tell us a little bit about your perspective with Moon. Uh, yeah, thanks, Rachel. I, I, I think uh, you're hitting a, a, an important point there, and and that is, and Peter knows this, um, there generally is a, one person or two people who really are pushing this rock uphill when they're doing a big clinical research project like this. There's a lot of people that participate, and, and we need those people, and they'll enroll patients, and they'll do data collection, and they'll make sure things happen. But really, most of these projects and most of these multi-center research efforts have one or two people that are really, really pushing a big boulder uphill. And it takes a lot of time and a lot of energy to do that. You really have to be passionate to lead one of these groups to make this stuff happen. Um, and and I think, you know, I, I, it's been my honor to work with the Shoulder and Elbow Society and try to create some of these groups. And the groups that are successful have somebody like that, somebody that can really just keep on task, keep people going forward, uh, you know, crack the whip and make sure people are getting patients enrolled and getting their follow-up calls and getting the data done. Uh, and it's not easy. Uh, you know, you, as a surgeon, uh, most of us are make our salary by doing uh, surgery and not doing research. So you have to be willing to kind of do for the greater good and, and probably take a pay cut, really, to, to do this. Um, and then, you, like Peter said, you need to have a team of people that have equipoise, that are willing to put their own things aside and work as a team and, and make things happen. It, you can't, surgeons tend to have egos, and we all do, uh, but you have to have a collection of people that are a little bit less egotistical and see the greater good to be able to get this stuff done. But the rewards are incredible. I mean, you know, the Moon Group, uh, we came together, we found a group of people that are willing to do this kind of work and, and take the time and the effort and take time from clinic and fill out forms and, and do all the work. Uh, but the payoff was amazing. I mean, you know, the, the, not only did we do the major research project that we were trying to f discover, but we also came off with a number of offshoot projects from the data and from our background data. Uh, and I can tell you that almost everybody who participated in the research group got promoted at their institutions because the number of publications that came out of the research. It was just an incredible uh, system to do that. So um, it, it's a great thing to do. I think it's a lot of fun, but I think it's not easy, and, I, and you really have to have one person uh, that can really push the rock forward and make this stuff happen. One question I wanted to ask both of you is, um, and I think this is a particularly hot topic as um, as we approach this kind of new era of research with COVID and how outcomes are changing and getting patients back to clinic, um, which may not be possible during shutdowns and whatnot. What do you guys think is the optimal uh, post-operative duration of follow-up to be publishable? And I know this has been discussed recently. 
in a variety of different papers. And, you know, we all typically like that two-year follow-up minimum. And then for instability, we really prefer a five-year follow-up. And, and there's been great work uh, by a variety of authors on that. But is six months enough to be publishable or is less or is more? What's your perspective on this? Because getting that longer follow-up duration is always one of the challenges of doing these types of studies, particularly um, at, with younger patients, particularly with instability patients as they move around the country or move around the world, you know, shortly after their surgery. What do you guys think is the, is the minimum duration of follow-up? Dr. McDonald, let's start with you. Yeah, thanks, Rachel. Um... I think it depends a bit on the topic. Uh, like you say, instability, a lot of the dislocations, uh, their failures are going to be later. So um, five, uh, two to five years, two years minimum, five years probably, as you mentioned, is probably the best. Um, but if you're looking at a pain study, like you're using two different pain mo modalities after uh, an operation like an ACL reconstruction, then probably six months is fine. But I think in most cases, you're looking at a minimum two years so that we kind of, when I was on the um, journal shoulder and elbow as associate editor, we kind of said, no, we're not going to take anything unless it's minimum two years. Um, so I think that's going to be the case for most of, most of the studies, but it depends a little bit on the topic. And Dr. Kuhn, what do you think? Same same philosophy? Do you think there's some outcomes that could be less than two years, some that absolutely need to be more? Um, what do you think is that minimum duration? Yeah, I, I you know, I think the, the Journal of, of uh, Bone and Joint Surgery came out with a two-year uh, recommended follow-up some time ago. And to me, that seems extremely arbitrary. Um, every Every condition we have in orthopedics has a duration that you'd have to follow patients for. For example, if you had a clavicle fracture and you had a way of treating that clavicle fracture, you may only need three to six months before that fracture is healed and then you would be done. There's no reason to follow up somebody beyond that point. If you're talking about a pediatric operation, like a hip dysplasia operation, you may want to follow those people into adulthood to see how they do. So, you know, Michael Porter talks about this in his healthcare books, but there's every, every diagnosis has a cycle of care, and there's a point at which you don't need to follow them anymore. And that, that's diagnosis specific. So for me, the two-year thing is somewhat arbitrary. I, I think you need to be able to make an argument that for certain conditions, six months is fine. For other things, two years is fine. And we know from natural history studies of instability, we need to have five-year follow-up. So I think every condition is, is different. I don't, I don't, I'm not a big fan of the two-year uh, like rule. I think it's, it's appropriate for some things, but not appropriate for others. Let me follow up with you, Dr. Kuhn, specifically about your prospective study on the success of non-op treatment cuff carriers in this regard. I mean, I, I've read the results of this study with interest. It's changed the way I treat my patients. I think a lot of orthopedic surgeons that they read the study would say the same. I know you've published the two-year two-year mark marker and then the five-year marker. And my reading is that there's not a lot of change between those. You know, you, yeah. I'm sure you expanded a huge amount of effort on that. Tell us, after having done that study, your perspective on follow-up with the cuff. Yeah, well, it, it, you know, cuff disease is, is like diabetes. I mean, once it starts to develop in your shoulder, it will continue to go on. Even if you have surgery, it may continue to go on uh, until you die, essentially. So we do need to have longer follow-up. We're now actually analyzing our 10-year data on our new cohort. Uh, and, and I think we're going to hopefully keep analyzing it as far as we can go. Uh, I can tell you that, uh, and we don't have it published yet, but I can tell you that 
your probability of dying is higher than your probability of getting a reverse arthroplasty. So uh, that's kind of an interesting st statistic. But uh, 13, somewhere around, uh, I have to get the numbers right, but it was about 3% of our cohort was dead by 10 years, and 0.2% of our cohort had a reverse arthroplasty. Uh, so uh, we're still we're still getting more data on this, but uh, the bottom line is I don't think I don't know if there is an endpoint for what we're doing. These natural history studies need to go on and on and on until we can say, okay, at this point, you don't really have to follow them anymore. They're, they're done. They're going to be fine. And, and we need to get that data. Is that going to be the headline of the study, the title, uh, <laughs> Death Versus Reverse, What Comes First? Well, you know, it, it's, I, the thing that, that used to bother me was people, I would be on debates talking about non-operative treatment. And we, when I was young, we were taught these all needed to be operated on. That's what we were taught. That's that was the dogma. And I would, when our data came out and we started to present it, they would put me on panels and I'd debate somebody, and somebody would take the position they needed to be operated on. And that person would always say, "Well, if you don't have surgery, you're going to need a reverse arthroplasty at some point." And and it's nice to say that's not true. Uh, you can tell patients that's not true. Well, we can't tell them they're going to be dead in ten years. Well, you don't want to tell them that. Uh, <laughs> some patients probably, you know, some patients probably will die in 10 years. And I would predict if, if you're in clinic, you can kind of tell who those people will be. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, most patients will be living. Most patients will be functional. Most patients will be doing fairly well. And, and we did not see a lot of surgeries down the road. Uh, most people who decided to have surgery did so in the first, you know, six weeks, really. Uh, and then after that, you, we do see some dropping off usually. And we're looking at that data now, but usually it, it happened after another injury uh, or a fall or some of those surgeries were adhesive capsulitis and biceps issues and maybe not even related to the cuff. So uh, it, it, hopefully we'll have a little bit more data in, in the next few months when we finish analyzing. Jed, can I ask, can I ask Jed a question? Um, like in our system in Canada where there's weight loss, you know, that people don't get in to see you for sometimes six to 12 months after their onset of shoulder pain, uh, do you think they've weeded themselves out? Like, I don't, I don't, like your study on non-operative treatment of cuffs is interesting, but it kind of like in our system, it's kind of already done because of the nature of the system. I mean, people right. who end up going to surgery are the ones who are, have failed non-operative. Yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right. And, and you know, that's why it, it, we couldn't really have a Canadian group in our moon group to do this kind of research. Uh, it's not generalizable to other countries like Canada, where the whole system is different. Yeah. Uh, so those are things to think about when you're reading the literature, for sure. All right, guys, I wanted to give you full disclosure that this podcast is the first in a two-part series. The next one is going to be about basic science research, you know, cell biology, rat research, biomechanics. So I'm going to give you the opportunity here. You know, clinical research often comes under attack by our PhD colleagues. They say it's too messy. There's the patients are too variable. The interventions are too variable. There's no ability to draw any conclusions from this data. So I'm hoping you can both defend clinical research for us. Why is this better than something in the lab where you can control every variable and make sure you have just one intervention you're comparing? So Dr. Prasad, what do you think? Well, I think you need both. Um, I, I mean, I don't, I'm not a lab guy very much, so I'm probably the wrong person to ask about the lab, but um, I think, the, the criticism of lab stuff is somebody's going to say, okay, well, it works in the mouse, but does it really work in the human sort of thing? Um, 
Whereas clinical research, we can say in this population, as long as you define the populations and they're relatively homogeneous uh, and you have two populations, very similar demographics and everything else, and you follow them prospectively over time, it's pretty hard to criticize some of the studies if they're well done enough, like the Nick Motati type studies, the Sandy Kirkley type, type studies. It's pretty hard to refute them. Although sometimes I find the outcomes to be quite surprising. I like, it goes against my dogma and my biases of the past. So one of the things that's challenging about clinical research is you have to park your biases and that's really hard because the patients can always read your biases in your face and they come in with preconceived biases. Like they come in and say, I need my Achilles repaired because my buddy had his repaired. And I, you know, and then you have to cite studies to say, well, at your age, probably there's no difference between non-operative and operative. So it's, it's talking yourself out of biases and it's talking patients out of biases. That's the challenging part. Uh, but I think you need both lab and clinical and clinical can be rewarding and, and it can say some valuable things. Dr. Kuhn, what are your thoughts? Why, why is clinical research important for us? Well, I, you know, I, I, it, you're, you're asking a, a really good question. I have my own biases, as Peter was talking about. I, I spent 10 years of my life doing biomechanics research at Michigan before I moved to Vanderbilt, where clinical research actually was much easier to do. And so at Vanderbilt, we set up the Moon groups. And, you know, Kurt Spindler, who did the Moon ACL group, and was my mentor in setting up the Moon shoulder group. And it, it, the systems were in place. When you're a young guy and you're going to a job somewhere, you just use the tools that are available at that job. And so you kind of ask questions that are basic science. If you have that at your institution, you can ask questions that are more clinically oriented if they have that in your institution. Uh, if you're asking me to compare the two, I, I think there are good things and bad things about both. Basic science research is awesome. It's great, but it, I think it's a little bit easier to do technically because the variables can be controlled easier. Uh, but is the data that you get clinically applicable? And it usually is something that says, well, you know, if if I pull out this anchor with this much force, but does, is that force that you might see in life? Does it matter? Is it generalizable? Uh, if we do rat research, does that apply to humans? As Peter said, um, you know, saccharin will cause cancer in rats, but doesn't seem to affect humans very much. So uh, you know, uh, you can't do randomized trials of smoking in humans. You can only do those in animals. So there, there's good things and bad things about both. In, in general, I think clinical research will affect people's practices more, even though it's harder to do and more complicated. I think if you find something that, that really shows that what we're doing needs to be changed, people will change more more readily. And I think that's appropriate. You know, when we talk about levels of evidence, we don't level basic science research. Uh, it, it seems almost like basic science research exists for us to say, okay, now how do we apply this information clinically? Let's do a clinical trial. So it kind of sets the stage and helps us think about things and mechanisms, but then we have to say, okay, now how does that apply to our patients? And the only way to really, really get at that is clinical research. Another hot topic in clinical research right now is registry data. And there's a lot that goes into this. Everyone likes registry data, but creating registry data is really, really difficult. Even, um, you know, even whether it's within a state, a society, a country, et cetera. What do you guys think is the best method or best mechanism for registry data? Should this be, should the ASCS create registries and everyone who's an ASCS member submit their data to ASCS? 
Should this be through industry? Because some industries have their own registries. Should this be through societies like the academy? Uh, and Or should this be by country? How, how does this work? What's the best way that we can use registry data? Dr. Kuhn, let's start with you. All right. Well, this, this has been a passion of mine. Uh, the thoracic surgeons developed a registry decades ago, which was phenomenal. I mean, almost every thoracic surgeon participates in their society's registry, and their outcome is pretty simple. It's mortality. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, it helped their field advance and make sure that the quality of care is better across the country uh, for participating in this registry. Um, we started to develop a shoulder arthroplasty registry within ASES probably about five or six years ago. And as, I, as we were working on this, and we had a committee of really smart guys with Warren Dunn and, and Rick Matson and others, and as we were working through this, the academy approached us and said, no, 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 we want to develop registries within the academy. And so we kind of transferred our efforts into developing that registry. So the shoulder and elbow registry with the academy now collects data on shoulder arthroplasty. Uh, uh, we have, uh, uh, let's see, we have uh, elbow arthroplasty. Uh, we have rotator cuff repair data, and we're starting to advance into other uh, arenas as well. Um, and, and that's worked out really well. The shoulder arthroplasty registry has really taken off, and it's terrific. Now, there's a couple other things I would say about registries. The first is the data from a registry is not perfect. When you're doing a randomized trial, you can determine what exactly your outcome is, what your research question is, and then you can tool your study to best answer that research question and figure out what data do I need to collect to answer that research question. Technically, a registry is kind of backwards. It's let's collect a, a lot of data and then see what comes up. And so it, it's by its very nature, it's almost always a retrospective study that comes out of it. Um, because you're not asking the research questions first, typically. Um, nevertheless, registries can be very helpful, and they give us a lot of data. Uh, but you have to understand that they, it may be somewhat limited in what you're getting. Uh, I think registries are important. I think the future of medicine will be data-driven, and I think registries will provide us with a lot of data. For example, there, there's no way to compare the Zimmer reverse arthroplasty or the Biomet reverse arthroplasty to the uh, Tournier reverse arthroplasty to the uh, Depew reverse arthroplasty. Which one works best? Uh, what, you know, which one seems to produce fewer complications? Nobody would do a randomized trial comparing different implants, but with a registry, you can start to look at data like that. So uh, I think the registries have an important role. I, I think it's great that our societies and our groups are producing them. As far as who should do it, uh, my feeling is the academy uh, is probably the best uh, group to do it. Uh, they have the resources to do it, number one. Number two, the academy exists uh, primarily to pr pr protect and advance our field. Uh, and, you know, the, the, I guess there's really no conflict of interest except the, 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 our, our societies really exist to, to help uh, our patients and help our, our physicians and our members. And so I, I think it's cleaner if the, the academy or if the Shoulder Elbow Society has a registry, then, it, then industry. Industry, it, it's all about who owns the data and who decides what data gets collected. Uh, and I think it's a little bit more pure if it comes from a society. Dr. McDonald, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I agree with a lot of what Jed said. Uh, registries have, um, they're very useful in certain respects, like comparing different implants. 
or you know if you look at the ACL registry uh, in Norway or in Sweden comparing hamstring tendon graft versus BTB things like that um, but there is very it's kind of survival rate and, and revision rate gross kind of outcomes that you can look at retrospectively uh, if you go to Australia they have registries for everything and they just what they do is there's a surcharge on the implant and um, the, the money they collect from that they the Australian Orthopedic Association has registries for all these different things foot and ankle all these different things it's amazing if you just go online you can can see all these registries that they've been able to generate so I think who does the registry I think it should be not industry because there's always going to be a suspicion of industry data um, although I applaud Arthrex for, for doing what they're doing uh, the uh, you know you got to give them a hand for for trying to to make it work but uh, I think cleaner data is going to be not industry uh, driven or industry owned and I think it has to be an organization it doesn't really matter whether it's um, a national organization or a subspecialty organization they have to have a lot of resources because um, like the academy academy has the resources to do it whereas uh, I don't think you know if shoulder and elbow got into it it may be a resource problem if we got into it like in a big way so um, probably the academy in terms of uh, the landscape in the US but yeah they are useful they're definitely and as time goes on this as Jed said we're gonna be gonna to have to produce data on everything and we the more data we have the better position we're going to be in. Now, many of the listeners to our podcast are trainees or surgeons early in their practice, people that are just getting started. Both of you have this just great wealth of experience in getting clinical research accomplished, getting it done, doing it on high quality. What advice would you give to someone who's just starting in clinical research? What's What's a good way to get started what mistakes did you make along the way that you wish you could go back and unmake? Dr. Kuhn, what are your thoughts? Yeah, well, that's great. Uh, you know, it's a really good question. Um, we have some young faculty uh, here at Vanderbilt that I'm trying to mentor as they find their way through doing research like this. Uh, and I would make a couple of points that I think are very important. Uh, the time that you have to devote to this is limited. Uh, you know, you, you're not a 100% researcher. None of the surgeons are. And so... Um, I would say finding a way to be super efficient with your time is critical. Uh, having a big picture uh, and then and then pursuing that picture and figuring out a strategy to get that done. Like the astronauts landing on the moon, there had to be a bazillion steps to get to that point. And so when you're a young faculty member and you have residents that come up to you and say, let's do a project, you should say, now how can I direct this resident to a project that will build a foundation for me to get to this big picture thing. For example, in the moon studies, when we started to look at rotator cuff tears, we recognized that there's a million ways to describe rotator cuff tears, and we didn't need to know which one would be the best way to do it. So we did inter-observer agreement studies to try to figure out how do we read MRIs, how do we look at rotator cuffs in the OR. And those are perfect resonant projects. Each one is a, is a building block, building that foundation for you to study this big picture of how do we manage rotator cuff disease. Uh, and so that's, I, I would say, of all the advice I would give, that's probably the most important. Now, if you're in a place that doesn't have resources, 
there's a lot of opportunities. You know, the ASES has a number of multi-center research groups. More are forming every year. We're actually about to launch into a few new ones because there's some groups that have not been progressing very well, and we're going to kind of readjust them. And so there'll be opportunities here in the near future to join these groups and participate. Uh, and finally, the, the academy's registries. If, if you can get your hospital system to enter data, you have access to all that data. And, and that's a great opportunity for people to do research uh, because, you know, you're, you're entering data as you go. But at the same time, now you have the data of everybody across the country who's participating in this registry. And if you can come up with good research questions, you can use the registry to answer them. So. Uh, there's a lot of different opportunities, but if somebody really wants to be uh, a leader and 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 make a group and make something happen, I think you have to just sit down for a while, think deeply about where you want to be in 10 years, and then figure out how to get there and, and steps along the way. What are your thoughts, Dr. McDonald? Yeah, those are great points by uh, Jed. Um, I'd say for somebody starting out, it's way easier to do it if you're in a bigger group versus a solo practice um, in a big group, especially one that's got experience with uh, with the research trials, then it's easy because, well, not easy, never easy, but you, you can at least partner with your senior partners who have experience in the area. I think that, as Jed mentioned, it's very time intensive. So you need to, I would say, uh, almost a prerequisite is to hire uh, some sort of research help because you're not going to be wanting to fill out forms after a long day in the OR or in the office. You need somebody to fill those out for you to get ethics approval, to tabulate data, to do the stats analysis. You need help that way. And you can hire um, you know, an athletic therapist with experience in research with a master's, something like that. You don't have to hire a PhD right away. Um, but uh, that's a good way to start is just to have a, a research associate. And I started, I paid my research associate right out of my own pocket um, before I got funding to do to do the research uh, over and beyond that. So um, it's sometimes painful at the start. It's labor intensive. It slows you down in clinic because you got to fill out forms. But in the end, you just keep thinking, well, I'm going to produce something that maybe is going to make a difference here. So. It is rewarding when you're finally able to do the finished product. So, uh, like Jed mentioned, there's ASCS and um, other organizations uh, have you know avenues that can help you out in terms of research and and registries are also a possibility. So, as uh, more and more there's it's going to be pooled efforts as opposed to individuals. Yeah, and I'll I'll second a couple of Peter's comments there. Um, we at Vanderbilt, we taxed ourselves 10% of our take-home pay to produce a research machine and, and pay our research associates. Uh, because for us in our, in our culture, in our division, it was just in our sports medicine division, uh, but that was important to us. So that's, that helped us get the funding to hire research personnel. And to be part of the Moon Group, we required every site to have a research person to manage the IRBs and, and make sure things were getting done. And, Follow up on patients. Um, it couldn't be done without that help. Uh, so those are two points that uh, that are critical. Well, guys, I really wanted to thank you both for coming on. This was just a phenomenal um, tour de force in terms of sharing all of your experiences and advice. That I know that you're both very busy, and I cannot tell you how much I appreciate it, and the SES appreciates you sharing your expertise uh, with the listeners. That's great. That was really enjoyable. As always, I learned a lot from Jed and 
both you and well, and, and thank you guys. I appreciate it. And Peter, you're a superstar. I'm following in your wake the whole way. <laughs> Thanks, Jen. Well, thank you guys so much. I'll, I'll echo Peter's comments. Um, unbelievable to have the two of you on this podcast. And because our listeners are shoulder and elbow focused individuals, I think they'll appreciate the, just the quality of individuals you both are and what you've contributed to the field, not just through your, your publications, but through the mechanism of your work and how you do it and you do it the right way and inspiring others who are earlier in their career to follow in your footsteps and continue to push research at a high level. Uh, so thank you both very much. That is all the time we have for today's podcast. Again, we want to thank our guests for all of our shoulder and elbow listeners out there. Please don't forget to subscribe. And for Pete Chalmers, I'm Rachel Frank, and we'll see you next time.